0: blues, it seems every year that we we get all excited about the feast, we go there, we're on an emotional high, and uh, it seems that with human beings, when we get emotionally high, we follow with a valley to some degree, and this has been true, I think, ever since I can remember in the church, two, three, four, five weeks after the feast, people kind of hit a low point emotionally, and it is a long time, it seems, from uh, the end of the Feast of Tabernacles to Passover, and uh, it's easy to get back to our lives and our routines and feel a little frustrated and depressed, and as human beings, we simply deal with those things and learn how to handle them. But how do we get ourselves out of it, I think, is the question. Uh, How do we deal with that? This year, on top of having the feast now behind us, we've also had a lot of colds and flus and sicknesses and various things, I think more than I can remember, since we've uh, been together. And uh, that season of the year is almost upon us. Uh, Maybe we're getting our antibodies and our immune systems uh, ready for some worse things that may be hitting the world soon, I don't know. (laughs) But at any rate, I think the best way out of emotional downs is to be sure we refocus on what we have to do, what God wants us to do, what we need to be doing, and get ourselves lined out and busy. It's difficult sometimes to do that, but Our focus is on the feast, and then when that's gone, it seems traditionally that people sort of lose focus for a while, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, whatever. And people in the world, even when they go on a vacation, the worst time of the year is when the day you get back from vacation and go back to work. Uh, It's hard to concentrate. It's hard to refocus on what you're doing because your mind has been more on idle and neutral for maybe a week or two or three. So it's hard to get back to the task at hand. And getting your focus back is, I think, very important in uh, dealing with our emotional doubts. Uh, We have a lot to do. Sometimes that's the depression, too, you know. You look at all you have to do and what there is that needs done and all the things that you've been told for eight days you need to do, and uh just dealing with that and living up to it and doing something about it can be depressing in itself. So we need to refocus, get our mind on the tasks at hand that God has for us, and then break it down into pieces. I know sometimes I look at my to-do list and it can be nearly two pages long of you know of a yellow pad. And if I look at that sheet, I want to pull the sheet back over my head. Uh, So I have to break it down. What am I going to do today? So I have my master to-do list, which is, you know, a couple pages, and then I make a list for today and maybe tomorrow. And, uh, you know, boil it down to three or four or five things that need to be done today. And then I can begin to get my mind around that, And once I have those four or five or six things for today, I try to avoid the difficult ones as long as I can. And if there's only five there, even if the first one is a small one and not as important, at least I can reduce it to four fairly quickly. You know, that's a 20% reduction in what has to be done today, at least in numbers. Uh, So take bites as you can handle I think that's true in Christian overcoming and in everything. You cannot overcome everything in one day. That would be discouraging beyond reason and belief. But pick out some things to work on and work on those today. You can always work on something else tomorrow. But when you sit down to eat, do you put a whole steak in your mouth at once? No, you usually cut it into smaller pieces, bite-sized and eat it a bite at a time. So, don't be overwhelmed. Just separate out, cut off bite-sized pieces, and go to work on what you can get done, and then be encouraged by what is done. You know, sometimes we look at what all has to be done, and it is difficult. But at the same time, we need to sometimes look back on what we have accomplished, And when we can see what we have done, uh, at least there's some progress. And that gives us hope that maybe if we have done this much, maybe we can get more done. So it's not a hopeless cause by any means. All we have to do is become like God by tomorrow. (laughs) But since that's impossible and obviously a joke... Let's chip away everything that looks like man that we can today and look a little more like God by tomorrow if we can. Well, just a couple of comments there. I know that this is a usual happening, but it doesn't have to get us down and make us quit. Uh, We simply have to go to God. That's one of the times the Psalms helps me a lot. If I do start to get down or depressed, I go back and read a lot of the things that David went through and uh, how he had to fight through them, and how his, he just got low at times, and had to go to God and seek out his ear, and sometimes that's hard to do, but we need to do it. <clears throat> I could go on with this, but I, I'll stop there, since this is the announcement period, and let's go on then back into Jeremiah. We've seen that truth has perished in the land, chapter 7, and that all the, the joyful culture and society that we have seen around us is perishing, and even the culture and society that we had in the church has been perishing around us. So there isn't the happiness and joy and the normal way of living that we have known it. That's going to change. It is changing. And it's about to change in a major way in this country itself. (coughs) In fact, it already is. It's just that it has not become obvious to everyone and the sudden destruction has not yet occurred. But everything to get it in line and in order and prepared for that to happen is being done pretty much behind the scenes and sometimes pretty much even out in the open. (coughs) So getting on into chapter 8, he's talking in verse 34 that the joy will cease from the land, and the gladness, and the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride, the land shall be desolate, and continuing in thought, it says, at that time, when those conditions prevail, when this begins to happen, at that time, says the eternal, they shall bring out the bones of the king of Judah, the bones of his princes, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, out of their graves, and they shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven whom they have loved and whom they have served and after whom they have walked and whom they have sought and whom they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor be buried. They shall be forgotten upon the face of the earth. There will be so many dying, there will not even be time, space, room, and people to bury them doesn't matter whether you're important in society or not, your bones will be laid out on the ground. The society and the culture that we have worshipped, the things that we have done, are simply going to be stripped bare. It's a physical analogy, and it's not just the bones of individuals, though there will be that, but it's the bones of our society, everything that we have worshipped and held dear. Everything in our culture that is ungodly. Review the covenant that God made with ancient Israel and see what God stipulated should not be in Israel's society. Look at our culture in America today and compare it with that covenant. There's you an interesting Bible study. You can mentally compare everything you see happening in America today as you read through the covenant of ancient Israel made at Sinai. And you will not find very many similarities between what is happening today in our land, this so-called Christian nation, and what God laid out for Israel to do. Verse 3, it will be so bad that death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of them that remain of this evil family. The bones will be laid out in the streets and not buried, and those who survive will be in such miserable conditions they would prefer to die than to live. Before this is all over, it says in the book of Revelation, now go to the mountains and the holes in the rocks, and beg and plead for the rocks to fall on, life will have become so miserable. choose death rather than life of them that remain of this evil family, which remain in all the places where I have driven them, says the eternal of hosts. Our people will be driven into slavery. It's not something we have experienced. In a long time. It's written in the annals of history and in the Bible that Israel was in captivity for 430 years in Egypt. Long captivity. But we don't remember that, do we? It's going to happen again. Not that long, but worse conditions. Moreover, you shall say to them, Thus says the Eternal, shall they fall? and not arise shall he turn away and not return why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding they hold fast deceit they refuse to return God says is it going to be this way forever no he's promised he's going to turn around going to turn it all around but why then if God says I can fix it for you we refuse him. Now, when somebody does have a flat along the road, let's say you do, and you're standing there not knowing what to do, car trouble or a flat tire or whatever, and somebody comes along and says, I can fix that for you, what do you usually say? Nope. No one help. I'll just sit here. Not a chance. Even if it's just a cell phone call to get you some other kind of help. Or if they say, I can fix it. Okay. We're happy to have help. But God says, I can fix it. And Israel says, anybody but you. I'll accept help from anyone but you. Why is it we rebel against those who love us the most? But we tend to do that. We take for granted those who love us the most, so easily, in our families and in our relationship with deity. We take God so much for granted that he tells us what will fix the problem. You know, sometimes it would help if you were broken down and someone came along and said, I'll, they, they might not fix it for you, but they'll say, I'll tell you how to fix it. Now, that's what God does. He he has this book to tell us how to fix what is wrong with our nation. Now, do people in our country physically understand that there are problems that need fixing? I think if you took a poll in the state of Louisiana today, you would get a high percentage who would say that there are problems that need fixing. And you could do the same thing in California. Why is the governor's opinion poll only 30-some percent in favor of the governor at this point, when he was a fair-haired boy just a few months ago? Why is President Bush's rating in the 30s now? And his administration in such grievous trouble... Politically, as well as uh, popularity wise Because the popularity goes down when there are problems. And we have a lot of problems. They were burning businesses and demonstrating at the summit the last couple of days down in Brazil. Because the leaders of the countries, most of them, want to have a free trade agreement in all the Americas. Five countries are holding back, and a lot of people were rioting, because they don't want it. So, there are problems on every level. Do you think this nation is going to turn to God? It tries to separate church and state completely, but I got an email the other day someone sent through, and it showed the preamble of the Constitution uh, of all 50 states, and every last one of them addresses Almighty God in its very beginning. But we're not going to look to God for answers. Well, that's them. But what about the church? Is the church, at a whole, as a whole, really searching the Scriptures to find out? What God wants, what He desires, what are the solutions to the problem spiritually within the church. I wasn't trying to get my brain going, I was actually trying to swat a fly on the side of my face, I'm sorry. Sometimes you hurt the one you love. Verse six, I hearkened and heard, but they spoke not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? How many times have I said that? And looking at various scriptures, maybe in different ways, how many in the church today overall are looking and saying, What have I done that has caused the problems we have today? Almost invariably, almost everyone, is said, it's someone else's fault. This is such a deeply embedded human characteristic that it is very hard to get around, through, or behind. No matter what the problem, it seems, we would like to blame it on someone else. But God will not allow that here. He says, you've got all these problems, you're about to be destroyed, The church spiritually is already being destroyed. The nation is about to be completely destroyed and taken into captivity. And nobody says, What have I done? Just a little four-word question. What have I done? Everyone turns to his course as the horse rushes into the battle. When they used war horses to go to war on. They get them all together, they're ready to charge, and there was an electricity in the air of an impending battle. And the horses would get excited. And the men would get excited. And they rushed into battle. Many would be killed. The horses sense danger sometimes too. It doesn't matter. They rush into battle anyway. But whatever there is coming. And he says, we're just like them. We'll just rush on in there where fools would fear to, I mean, where angels would fear to tread. Rather than questioning, what have I done? How could this be prevented? You no, know, when, when two armies line up on either side and get ready to fight, at some point you forget trying to solve the problem. At some point you just commit yourself, I'm going to go on in there, whatever happens, happens. Could we back off and possibly find a way to solve the problem rather than dying? That's what God is putting before us. Question why this is happening. Nothing happens without cause and effect. Why is it happening to the church? Why is it happening to the nation? What have I done? Yes, the stork in the heaven, those are appointed times. They know when to get up, they know when to go to bed, they know when to mate, they know when to lay eggs, they know when to migrate. God just put it automatically in their minds to do things a certain way. The dove, the crane, The Swallow, observe the time of their coming. You've all heard of the Swallows coming back to Capistrano. They come back same time every year down in Southern California to that mission in that area of Capistrano. And you can almost set your watch by it. They know their appointed times. They know where they're supposed to be and at what time of the year. You know about what time to put out your hummingbird feeders here, don't you? And you know about when to take them down, because the hummingbirds know when to go south, and they know when to go north. Well, God has set those things, and all these creatures react according to the way He has set their minds. (coughs) There's only one exception. He addresses that. But my people know not the judgment of the Lord. His judgment, his way, what he desires. They don't know. No, to the animals and the birds, and the insects, everything they do comes naturally to them. Why do we have to be the way we are? I said so I started to say so owly. That's wrong, because even the owl knows what to do, knows when to hunt at night because it has big eyes and can see and the Mice are out to play at night. Well, he knows what to do. Human beings are the only ones who have trouble doing what they were set to do. How do you say? How can you say? How do you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Certainly in vain made he it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. God says, look, how can you say you're wise and you have the law of God? Because you're not doing the things that would make you look like a people of God. How much does God look down from heaven above and observe what is going on on the earth, and in America, since I'm speaking mostly to Americans, how much does he look down and say, that looks like me, that looks like my covenant, that looks like my law, that looks like my way of living. I would like to go down there and live with those people and make them my people, because we have so much in common. I wonder how often he says that. And yet he tells us in Revelation... That he is going to come down here and dwell with men, and that he will be pleased and happy to dwell with us. That's his goal, that's his purpose, and he will do it, because it is prophesied and his word cannot be broken. The kicker is the most mankind will have to die before God will be willing to come down here. Man's society will have to be absolutely destroyed because God is unwilling to come down and live under these conditions with men. Now, he loved the world so much he gave his son that it might be saved. We have to be saved from ourselves. And the only way to do that is to basically wipe it out and start over different circumstances, different leaders, different rulers, different minds, everything. See, the minds of the people who survive through the last seven plagues, seven last plagues, will be considerably different than they are today. There will be so much trauma, so much bloodshed, so much hunger, so much pestilence and disease, the people will be humbled. They'll have a totally different attitude. They'll be ready to be taught. We don't know the judgment of God. We can say we have God's way or we're Christian, whether it's a Christian nation or Christian church. But can God look down and say, doesn't look like my word. Doesn't look like what I have written down. Did God make the law in vain since it's ignored? Did He write all of this down and have all these different people write it, and it's all for nothing? <laughs> he says to live by every word of God, and yet He says, "I look at society, and it is anything near what's written in this book." Why is it we have so much trouble coming out? of this society and this culture and this way of thinking. It's magnetic, isn't it? It, It's just, there's something in us and this society and culture we've lived in that just pulls us together. And you try to pull away, but it's just constantly dragging on you, isn't it, to pull back. But if you've ever noticed in dealing with iron and magnets, that when they're right together, The separation is sometimes almost impossible if it's a strong magnetic draw. You get it away a little bit and it really tugs. You get it back a little further and it still tugs but not as much. And if you pull it out here two, three feet away, there's hardly any pull at all. In other words, the further you get from it, the less it pulls on you, the less it tries to draw you in. Now, why are we so foolish that we will try to separate from the world a half inch or an inch? It doesn't make any sense at all, does it? Because then you're going to be sitting there pulling as hard as you can to keep that distance. Everything in the Bible tells us get completely away. And The further you get from it, the less it pulls on you the less difficult it is. How can we say we're wise when we don't look like his law or like his word? Verse 9, the wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed and taken. They don't understand it. They're confused. They're taken in by it. In the church and in the world. They bought into Satan's culture. They bought into man's ways. And they're dismayed that it hasn't produced peace and happiness. Don't we have all the things that should produce peace and wonderful relationships and happiness? Take Christmas, for instance, and we'll get to it maybe today in this context. That's a time of love, peace, and joy, isn't it? Well, I mean, that's what it's cracked up to be. But there are more murders on Christmas generally than any other day of the year. There are more family fights probably on Christmas than any other time. Well, maybe Thanksgiving comes close. More drunkenness. More car crashes. More trouble. That which is supposed to represent peace and happiness and love produces just the opposite. You know, we could make a Feast of Tabernacles just like Christmas, couldn't we? We could spend ourselves crazy buying gifts for each other. We could go there and drink steadily and eat voraciously. And since we're all close together, we could fight and talk about each other. And we could turn the Feast of Tabernacles into Christmas real easy. It be a financial, emotional, mental burden in every way. Wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Yes, they have rejected the word of the eternal and what wisdom is in them. Human reasoning and logic does not lead to peace and happiness. Those things are the fruit of the Spirit of God. And how do we learn the ways of God? Well, by reading his word. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. The word of God says. (coughs) It's easy to be taken in by what the world believes if you read, observe, and talk to people in the world. But if you read God's word consistently... That will influence you to do things the way God wants them done, not the way the world would do them. No wonder they're confused. They have no wisdom. They've rejected the word of the eternal. Therefore will I give their wives to others and their fields to them that shall inherit them. Our people are going to have their wives, their fields, their possessions taken away. They're going to slavery. Prostitution, force, that's just what's going to happen to our wives, men, if we don't obey God. We're supposed to be the leaders. We're not supposed to let that happen to our families. But it's going to happen to all the families of this nation and to 90% of the families in the church. It's grim. For everyone, from the least to the greatest, is given to covetousness. From the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. What's in it for me? Put me first. That is what our society is all about. And it doesn't make any difference who we are. That is the human tendency, and it is the way society pulls us. So it's corrupt. It doesn't matter whether it's political leaders, religious leaders, teachers, those who should lead society, have given into it just as much as anyone else. If it's not being taught right at church and at school, what chance is there, really? What a falsehood is being taught at church and at school. One of the biggest reasons we have attitudes in the Church of God today is was because of misuses by the administration and the ministry. It has affected the church. It has affected it greatly. It affects a lot of attitudes to this day because of covetousness and dealing falsely. And there was an awful lot of it in the Church of God. We have to somehow move past that and no longer ask the question, what have they done, because that is a long time ago. We have to ask the question, what have I done? Jeremiah 8, 6 should be a memory scripture. What have I done? Not what did they do to me. You've got to get past that. It doesn't give us any excuses for our attitudes today. It's just sad that we're dismayed, confused, and frustrated. And in some cases, it has arrested our growth. Because people are still dwelling on what was done in the past. And it has created emotional and spiritual problems that have existed until today and will beyond today. What I'm saying here in reading Jeremiah to us might cause some of us to begin to think and to get past some of those attitudes of hurt. But then again, it may not. We may hang on to them. But who does it hurt? Who's upset? Who's frustrated? Who's mad? Who's confused? The one who clings to those attitudes. That's who it hurts. And if the leadership in the church continues to do the same things that caused the hurt in the first place, then that continues it, and we still have to deal with it. So the ministry, including yours truly, have to repent of any of those attitudes, false dealing and covetousness that are still within us, because it creates confusion and frustration among the people. And then they have trouble with us, And consequently, then, they have trouble with God. That's why you get judged doubly when you speak and teach. Verse 11, For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, not much, just a little bit, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They have created a mess. And then to say, there is peace, when there is no peace, doesn't help much. Peace is the fruit of God's Spirit. If we don't have peace, we don't have enough of God's Spirit. That's just the bottom line. If we fight and war among ourselves, James says, there is ego, vanity, vanity and self-involved. We're not ready to be good neighbors one to another. Excuse me. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. How can you be ashamed, how can you blush, when you've wiped your mouth and said, I've done no wrong. It's somebody else's problem. If you can put it on someone else and blame someone else, why would you blush or be ashamed? And maybe we've gotten so used to our attitudes, even though they're wrong attitudes, that they don't even bother our conscience anymore. Does it bother your conscience when you backbite, gossip, Put someone down? When you don't love your neighbor as yourself, does it bother you? It still bothers you when someone talks about you, doesn't it? Yes, it does. We don't like it. But we do not receive or have that kind of pain, grief, and anger when we say something about someone else. That just rolls out of us so easily. If we don't get angry about it. Well, we may reprimand ourselves later if we think about it. I should have said that. But it doesn't really hurt us, bother us the same way it does if we heard somebody said something about us. That tells us then that we have not come to love our neighbor as much as ourselves. Because that which we don't like happening to us, we still do to others. That's just one small example. And one reason I use that example is because this context is about having peace. And when we talk about each other in ways that are hurtful, uh, it destroys the peace. And it just shows the Spirit of God is not flowing. Enough. So we need more of God's Spirit. <clears throat> so sometimes we continue with our problems and our sins and our attitudes. How are we going to blush if we're not even ashamed or embarrassed of them? This whole country's that way, and pretty much the whole church is that way. And why are you and I any different, and why would this not apply to us? Neither could they blush, therefore shall they fall among them that fall. Now we know the whole nation is going to fall, and people who are not willing and able to recognize their problems and change them are going to fall with them. How can we find a way to avoid that? I don't want to fall with this nation when it falls. I don't think you do either. <coughs> God shows us, shows us how we can avoid that if we're just willing to pay the price. Will they let you get on the ferry boat or the airplane unless you pay the price? No. If you want to fly from here to Chicago, you have to buy the ticket, you have to pay the price, and if they see the ticket that's been paid for, they'll let you on the plane. If you sneak into the landing gear and try to get a free ride, they'll drive your cold, dead body out in Chicago. Maybe MASH, too. People have tried that. The landing gear goes up, and the body changes shape. There's only one door. There's only one way in. Jesus Christ made that very, very clear. He's the door. He's the way and the life. You can't enter in any other way. So we might as well just go ahead and buy the ticket. Pay the price. Whatever is required. Well, God is the one that sets the price. I mean, the airline sets the ticket to Chicago, but God sets the price for deliverance from what, for what's coming. He tells us what we need to do. The only question remaining, then, is are we willing to pay the price in a daily manner. (laughs) Or when they fall, will we fall too? Verse 13, I will surely consume them, says the Eternal. This isn't a question. There's no doubt. It is going to happen. When Noah started building that boat, the die was cast. The decision was made. God was not going to have Noah work on that for 60 years and then say, "Uh, Noah, scuttle the boat idea. No, he went ahead and let him work on it 120 years because the decision had been made. The world would be flooded. Only eight people would survive. I suspect there were billions of people on earth when that happened. Billions. People didn't just live 60, 70, 80, 90 years then. They lived nearly a thousand years. Some 900 and some year old people died in the flood. Not only that, they didn't just have children for maybe 20 years and stop. They could be productive for a long, long time. 150, 100 years ago, when was it? I noticed in a chart just the other day. There were only a billion people on the earth. Now there's six and a half. 100 years later, roughly. So it went from a billion to six and a half billion in 100 years. What if you had a thousand years of people not dying and producing children by the boatloads. You know, it's like, would you rather have a million dollars or a penny doubled for 30 days? You ever gone through that one? I'm sure we've all seen it. A million dollars would cut you way short. You know, the penny doubled today tomorrow doesn't seem like much. Two cents. Two days. Four cents. Man, already one fifteenth through this and I've only got four cents. But keep doubling it for 30 days, and the million dollars will seem like nothing. For God has just stated unequivocally, I will surely consume them, says the Eternal. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and the leaves shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. It's just like fall coming. The leaves turn, the fruit falls off, and winter hits. Won't be any leaves on the trees around here in another month, will there? Won't be many flowers blooming. The leaves are already starting to go in most cases. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's the way God says it's going to be. The things I've given them, the blessings in this productive land, are going to be taken away. The spiritual blessings God has given the church are being taken away already. So it applies to both. Verse 14, Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves and let us enter into the defense cities and let us be silent there. I checked this passage. It's it's a little enigmatical in the King James. I checked it in some other uh, translations. And the consensus was that Why are we just sitting here waiting to die? Let's go to the cities and perish there, or die there. They attack the cities first, but why die out here alone? Let's just go there and all die together. In other words, this is a sentence that God has passed. There's no commuting it. There's no taking it away. It simply is going to happen. Now he tells his people in many places, including the book of Jeremiah, to get away from this society in every possible way. But he tells the general populace, "Why just sit around, wait for die? Go to the city. Get ready to die there. <laughs> Might as well have company, I guess, when you go down." I've heard a lot of people comment. I've made the same statement myself sometimes. If I'm just going to be left behind to die with the world, I'd rather be in New York or Chicago. Maybe I could be at ground zero when the bomb hits, you know, and it's all over in a flash. Why stay out here and get picked off one by one, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. It's going to occur. Go on into the city and die suddenly. With everyone else. This context is, it is going to happen. There's no stopping it. So, if you're going to be left behind, die as quickly as possible. Harkens back to verse 3. Death shall be chosen rather than life. This isn't speaking to God's people, saying, why do we sit still? Let's go to the defense cities. That wouldn't make sense. And it would contradict all the other instruction God gives. This is speaking of the populace at large and the pronouncement that is made against it and saying, we might as well choose death rather than life because this thing is coming just like gravity. You can't stop it. Let's continue. The context makes that clear. For the Lord our God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink, because we have sinned against the eternal. Therefore it's immutable. It's coming. Can't stop. We look for peace, but no good came, and for a time of health, and behold trouble. Isn't that the way it is built today? Science is going to solve all our problems. We'll make drugs that will fix everything that's wrong with you. Go take their drugs and see if it fixes everything that's wrong with you. Usually, it will make more things wrong with you. It would seem it costs purposes for a drug company to advertise its latest cure-all and then give you a list, as long as your arm, of things that it will do to you. But I think the main reason they do that is because of the legal problem. You know, you start taking it and it makes your joint and your left forefinger stop hurting. (laughs) But it makes you go blind and gives you diarrhea and stomach problems and heart palpitations. They're afraid they'll get sued for what it did to people. So they give you all this list of things as an disclaimer that this could do to you. Then they show people drifting through the meadows, saying, Happy, happy, because my left forefinger doesn't hurt now. No, if it did all those things to you it said it might do you as a side effect, you're not going to be skipping through the tulips. Sorry. But all the things they say they're going to do to us to bring us peace and happiness usually bring us more grief and misery and pain. And then we're dismayed and confused. They look for a time of health. We're going to live longer and longer. I saw a news item just yesterday where they were squeezing some funny looking stuff out of the tube and they're going to grow me some new organs. What do you need? Well, I could start with if I only had a brain, I guess. Grow me a new one. Upgrade, please. They're going to do everything for us. We're looking for a time of health and long life. And if our body goes bad, they'll just clone us. Give us a brand new body. Isn't it strange and funny and ironic in a way that everything God says he will do for us, Satan offers us now? (coughs) He will offer us Artificial eternal life through cloning. And in religion, he'll offer us reincarnation, where we can keep coming back. It's something a little different. He gives us the pagan doctrine of the immortality of the soul, so we think that we won't really die. No, surely McLean is going to come back as a mouse, and then maybe as a horse. I don't know what she's going to be. Well, I do too, so you're going to be dead know nothing. But Satan is a master at offering us eternal life in some form or fashion. And he's a master at guiding the minds of men to try to offer us long life, health, peace, and happiness, and good times. We look for a time of help, and behold, trouble. The same thing is offered in the church, as is for our problems. It's a little different, but the story really is about the same. If you will just do what I say, pray, pay, and stay, you will receive eternal life. We look for a time of health and strength, salvation, and behold, trouble. We've got to get off that soapbox and quit offering that deal to God's people. It is being offered by all too many organizations. And there is trouble coming. 90% of the church will go into the tribulation and fall as they fall. And you and I, by being here, by hearing these words, (coughs) will not be saved by them. We will only be saved if we do God's way. We live His way. (coughs) I won't tell you that if you stay here, peace and safety will come. There's no guarantee of that, whatever. The only way that that will happen is if we respond and do what God says. doesn't matter that you hear that you'll be okay. <laughs> Staying here and praying and saying and paying will get you nothing unless you live God's way. It just won't. It won't get me anything to stand here and read these things to us if I don't live by it. So, we looked for peace, and no good came, and for a time of health, and behold, trouble. The snorting of his horses was heard from Dan, in other words, The destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way, and Dan was the northernmost tribe, so the alarm was first raised when it first begins to approach the people of Israel. They were the ones that heard it first. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. If You're asleep at night, and you hear war horses galloping through the night, and the noise of the hooves gets louder and louder. It'll scare you. For they are come and have devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those that dwell therein. For behold, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, says the Eternal. The great serpent is sending his progeny, and we will be bit, and we will die. It's that simple unless we do something about it. When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. You know, when when I would tell myself, everything's going to be all right, (laughs) yet I knew deep in my heart that it would not be. Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in a far country. People in a far country are going to come against Israel. Primarily, first, and then they will make an alliance to live together in peace once Israel is destroyed. That's their plan. Get rid of all the Israelites, and we Gentiles will live together in peace, harmony, and an economic power, and will have peace on earth in a world devoid of Israelites. That is their goal and their purpose. <coughs> Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? Isn't God in Israel? Aren't we a Christian nation? Isn't God in the church? Isn't our king leading us? It's a rhetorical question. Well, if that's the case, why have they provoked me to anger with their idolatry and their strange egos and self-worship? Why have we done this? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Interestingly, we're discussing this particular chapter when the summer is ended. The harvest, the feast is past, and we're not saved. This is an interesting verse. I don't know whether it has to do with a specific year that this can be said, or whether it might be that the spring and the summer of America and of the church Is pretty much over, and we're entering the cold, hard, difficult time. Maybe it has overtones of that as an overall condition. America is not in the summer of her youth as a nation, as an empire. America is old, haggard, sinful, a decaying, morally bankrupt institution. Physically, monetarily, materialistically bankrupt. We just don't recognize it yet. We still live on credit to the world. Credit to the banks. And it hasn't hit home. But we are degenerate and immoral in every facet of life. We're not in the summer of our years. To borrow God's metaphor from Ezekiel 16, we're an old whore, and we're about to go out of business. No one's interested anymore. We can't get alliances made anymore. We can't make deals anymore. We've made deals. We've threatened. We've forced. We've controlled. We can't do it anymore. No one's willing to make a deal for our services anymore. Bush ran into that in Brazil the last two days. He's run into that in the Middle East. You run into it anywhere you go anymore. They just don't like us. So the harvest is past. We've had and enjoyed whatever we've had and enjoyed, and the fruits of the blessings that God gave this people as a result of Abraham's obedience. But it's about to come to a screeching end, and there's ice on the pond. So the summer of our society is over. We're facing a very bleak time. And the church's summer of fun is over, too. And the church is already in winter time. Tough times are ours. So there's that overall understanding of this verse. But I think God, being who God is, and His Word being written the way it is, that it probably, in some year, is going to also be true specifically. That that is that we will say the harvest is past, the summer's ended. Why are we still in the trouble we're in? And then God will turn it around. Is it this year? Would be our first question. Answer? I don't know. The summer is ended. The harvest is past. We are not yet saved. What will the winter bring? What will the spring bring? I don't know. It might be this year. It might not be this year. But the question, the thought, has to be posed. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. When I look around and I see the destruction that is about to hit the country and destruction that has already hit the church... I'm already hurt, I'm bothered by the trouble and the pain that it has caused in my family and other families. I am black, astonishment has taken hold on me. Black is a symbol of famine and pestilence, and the spiritual famine and pestilence is certainly already hit in the church, <clears throat> and we have felt the famine and the disease spiritually that has resulted. And it hurts. It still hurts, doesn't it? You have friends and family, brothers, sons, sisters, mothers, fathers, sons and daughters, nieces and nephews, children and grandchildren that you hurt for because they see nothing about what is coming, either physically if they're not even in the church or spiritually if they're in the church and cannot see why we're where we are and where we're headed next. We hurt for them. So this is a very now scripture. I am black. Astonishment or grief has taken hold on me. Is there no bowel in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Gilead is an area east of Jordan. It extended essentially from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea along along the east bank of the Jordan River. (coughs) Compared to a lot of the rest of Israel, it's a very verdant area, it gets 28 to 32 inches of rain a year, which is enough to grow uh, a forest. It is a good grazing area, Uh, that much rain produces quite a little grass, and traditionally Back then, and even yet today, it is still a pretty productive area for that land. <laughs> and out of Gilead came resins from trees that were used as a palm and for healing. Gilead, the word means witnessing stones or testimony. In other words, that that name means testimony then of God. You raised up a stone pillar to show a border. A border of Israel. The Gentiles should not come in. A border for the church. In other words, a spiritual testimony. That's what the word Gilead means. And in Gilead came aromatic resins. I could go into other scriptures, which I won't do, but back in Genesis and even later in Jeremiah it talks about bombs from Gilead. They were exported to Egypt and all over the world because uh, that particular resin, I don't know which tree it was from, I didn't uh, research it that far, it doesn't matter, I don't suppose, for us right now. But it was known as having healing helping properties. And that's why this is used. We see all the trouble going. Isn't the king, isn't the Lord in Zion? Well then, why have we sinned? We look for healing, and we see trouble among our peoples. So the question is posed. Is there no balm in Gilead? Didn't God provide trees that would give us help? Then where are they? Is there no position there? Is there no help? You're not going to go to the drug com- companies and the medical profession to get this kind of help. That's not what it's talking about. Let's not misinterpret. It's talking about natural things that God put there and gave us that would truly help. There's a song. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Very beautifully done soul. I'd like to hear it in special music. We used to do that one a lot. God is our bomb. God is our physician. Read Psalm 103, where it says, He is our healer. He is our God. He provides the answers. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why can't we look to God for the healing we want? Spiritually? Physically? Any kind of healing that we desire, why can't we look to God? Here again we have cause and effect. He tells us right here in this context, the reason we don't see God in our lives as much as we would like. The reason we do not see the spiritual or the physical healing that we desire is because we have sinned and made idols of ourselves and other things. And if we are to achieve those things and we're going to be able to look around and say the harvest is past, the summer is ended, And we are saved. And we will be able to say that someday. We'll be able to change this, see? We'll be able to say the summer is past, the harvest is ended, and we are saved. And the reason is, we are going to repent of our idolatry. We're going to change those things that make us look like the world. We are going to become a people whom God will look down upon and say, I want to be with those people. And Christ is going to be with us in Zion. He is going to be with us in villages without walls and be a wall of fire of protection around us and a covert from the heat. And he's going to plant seven churches in the wilderness and seven churches will take hold or women will take hold of one man and there will be a people who will be blessed in a bleak, cold, hard land. And you and I are going to be there, aren't we? Aren't we? Why? Are we going to be there? Because you stay here and pay and pray? Not on your life. We are going to be there because we are going to get rid of the idols of self and ego and vanity. And we are going to separate ourselves from the world so that it does not pull us back in. And we are going to develop a magnetism an electricity, a relationship between ourselves and our Father in Heaven and our bridegroom to be. That's why we're going to be there. That's why. Now all we have to do is perform. And there will be a balm in Gilead to heal our sin-sick souls. Our physician will attend us. He will heal us. He's promised to heal, but he will heal those who will follow him. We're still in trial. We're still in tribulation. We've not been healed yet. This year already, <clears throat> the summer is over, the harvest is past, and we are not healed. But it is coming. For those who will repent, who will say, what have I done? Let me fix it. Those are the ones that will be heaped. Those are the ones that will be drawn together to be the remnant that is protected. It is going to happen. We have opportunity to be there. We have opportunity to be rejected if we don't perform. Chapter 9, Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He's kind of using a metaphor to say only if my, my head was completely full of water, it could just drain all the time. That's how sorrowful I feel. That's how frustrated and upset I am. That I wish I could just cry all the time because of how bad things are. You know, I find myself that way. The frustration, the grief, the misery that I see. Not in those just around us or out in the rest of the church, but right here. And those who are listening out on the telephone. I hear of heart trouble, diabetes, dementia, dementia cancer, you name it. I hear these things through all the church. Go to the websites of the different organizations. Look at their prayer list. It'll be long. Things that are wrong. Look at ourselves. All the problems we have. I just named a few. But it's frustrating and grievous to get the phone call I'm not doing so well. So-and-so's not doing so well. It hurts. It hurts. But what is it going to take to get us to perform what we need to do? And God has told us that. Through much tribulation, enter the kingdom. And many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God will deliver us from them. So when I see all these troubles, it grieves me. Sometimes I just I pray to God. Father, we have so many problems. So many people with difficulties. So many sicknesses and illnesses. Help deliver us. Isn't it on our lips? Constantly and consistently? Doesn't it hurt? Yes, it does. I wish my head was just a big water bag so I could cry all the time. And then there's another emotion sometimes. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men. That I might leave my people and go from them. Sometimes you just have almost the overwhelming feeling just get away from it all. Oh, that there was a mountaintop home in the wilderness somewhere. A place that you have to go way out of your way to find. They could just go and get away from it all. Jeremiah saw all these problems. I said, I feel like crying all the time. It hurts so bad to see what's happening. And yet on the other hand, sometimes I just wish I could get away and not see it. Jesus wept. He saw the press of the problems and the needs. Everyone coming to him saying, Heal me, help me, fix me, bless me. And huge multitudes of people. And he finally just get to the point, he say, I've got to get out of here, go up the mountains and find a place to pray and talk to God. I can't take any more of this. And he would go get his batteries recharged with his Father in heaven. Now it wasn't a sin to feel that pressure or to cry as a result of seeing all the hurt and the sickness, the sin sickness of the society around him. It wasn't a sin to feel compassion and pity and frustration. But he had to go to God to get the strength to deal with that and to come back and to help all he could. And you and I feel the same way a lot of times, don't we? It just gets difficult to deal with all the problems around the world, in the church, and even among ourselves. For then be adulterers An assembly of treacherous men. Jeremiah was looking at the people of Israel. The people of God. God's chosen nation. God's light to the world that was supposed to be. And she was just an old whore. Selling herself cheaply to anyone who walked by. Again, Ezekiel 16. And hasn't the church also become that? Compromising, making deals, the organizations offering themselves as little more than whores, compromising on anything in order to retain people and money. Cheap. Selling out true spirituality for numbers and money. It's true of the nation and the church. They bend their tongues like their bow for lies, just like pulling an arrow on a bow. The bow bends. And we're willing, overall, as a church, to bend the truth like you would a bow, to lie for whatever gain you might think you'll receive for it. But they are not valiant for the truth. You'll bend the bow, you'll make a lie in order to get what you want, but not be valiant for the truth. I hope that we are not like that. I hope that we'll be uncompromising in searching God's Word for truth. And that we will keep it no matter what the cost. I sort of cringe every time we see something in the Scripture that we have not understood, that would change us, that would make us more different from the rest of the church. I know inevitably that whatever it is, Some will not appreciate it. Some will not agree with it. Some will leave us. But if we don't have integrity, we have nothing. And if it's in the book, it has to be done. It does not matter if it costs numbers or money. It just doesn't matter. We will do the best we can to understand God's word and follow it. We must be valiant for the truth. When it came to changing Passover, I am not so naive as to think some would not agree and some would leave. And that we would be ridiculed and persecuted. All of those things came to pass. But we will follow the Bible as closely as we can understand it. I am not saying someone who disagrees and they understand it the other way should not do it that way. If they can't do it the way we're doing it in good conscience, it would be sin for them to do it our way. Therefore, we need to be very careful in our attitude toward them. You know, we resent it when somebody tries to convince us we're wrong. We don't like them bugging us to do it our way. I mean, they don't like them bugging us to do it their way. But you know what? That coin has two sides. They don't appreciate it when we got them to do it
1: our way,
0: which we would interpret as God's way. Because God's way, through our eyes, is always the way we see it. Isn't it interesting that everybody in the church, basically, approaches the Bible and the Bible says, what they think it says. And we are not immune to that. We may not have all truth. Matter of fact, I think I could guarantee that we here today do not have all the truth. We still have things to learn. And there may be some people out there who already know some of those things that we don't yet know. We better be careful about going about trying to convince them that they are wrong. We need to prove to the best of our ability what is right and then do it, but not bug people either. I mean, we need to be able to print and present it, but not bug them. You know, we sent a letter out, sent the papers out on Passover. Now what should I do? Should I write a letter every month to every one of those addresses and say, why haven't you accepted our papers yet? Think that'd help? No, I'd get even more hate mail. We need to be careful with people right here that we might know that might disagree with us. Is it fair to them if they come to our door to keep bringing it up? I don't think so any more than we want them to keep bringing up to us why they're right. Let's be fair. Let's just do good. Let's be good. And let's obey the truth as we understand it the best we can. If we understand it better tomorrow, then we'll make adjustments and do better there. It's frustrating in a way when somebody, let's say they have the calendar as their main thing. So they accuse everyone else who does not keep the calendar the way they do, it's not worth being willing to follow the Bible. Now wait a minute, let's back off a second. All of us want to follow the Bible. What they should say is, These people don't want to follow the Bible the way I read it or interpret it. Now, each and every one thinks that they are not interpreting, they're reading it for what it says. Everyone else is interpreting. Can that be? Better just do it the best we understand it. Well, I'm out of time. I didn't get to the end of the chapter, but there again, there's a good place to stop. The church as a whole is not valiant for the truth. And we need to be valiant for it. And not lie or compromise, but find out what God says and do it. Then a day will come when we can say, there is a bomb in Gilead. And the Lord is in Zion, and will be there. Let's look forward to that day, and let's make it happen.